that today's banana, the Cavendish, is probably not the banana your great-grandparents ate. There was once a time when a variety called the Gros Michel was the top banana. Historian Dan Capel tells us more. My name is Dan Capel, and I'm a writer. I'm the author of Banana, the Fate of the Fruit that Changed the World, uh, among other books. So the Cavendish is one of over a thousand banana varieties. And it is the second commercial variety. The first commercial variety was called the Gros Michel banana. It was introduced in non-banana growing countries, in other words, as an import product or an industrial product around 1890. Um, And pretty soon after it was introduced, it began to be attacked by a fungus, um, which is commonly known as Panama disease. And this fungus, through about 1950, basically wiped out the Gros Michel um, as a commercial product. Um, It's still grows in places, but it can't be grown commercially because most places where bananas can be grown remain infected. Cavendish was a replacement for that. It was chosen because it resisted this disease. But around 1989, a variant of that disease began to strike Cavendish. And since then, it has spread around the world, that variant. And very recently, in the past two or three years, it has begun to appear in Latin America, which is the source of nearly all imported bananas to the United States and most of Europe. The plight of the banana should be viewed as a warning sign. As we struggle to save this beloved fruit, we should also consider the entire food system and how it's threatened. Today, we take a look at how biotechnology can help us overcome some of the globe's greatest food challenges and increase sustainability, access, and economic equity across our food systems. I'm Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. The banana presents an interesting case study. It is the world's most popular fruit. It's affordable, accessible, tasty, and nutritious, yet it could vanish from the store shelves unless we address what is called agricultural monoculture, a term for the growing of a single variety of a crop in the same landmass. As Dan explains, Cavendish bananas are more susceptible to widespread disease because they are all genetically identical clones. You know, just a little background on on the banana. You know, bananas are clones. Every Cavendish is like every other Cavendish, which is makes them very easy to grow, but it also makes them very susceptible to disease. I said there were about a thousand different banana types. Um, They're actually about sort of like genetically, let's say there are about 10 to 12, and all bananas get sick very easily because of that lack of diversity. Even, Even... non-export bananas, local bananas. And though not every banana disease makes every banana variety sick, nearly every banana variety can get sick from most or a lot of banana diseases. So when we worry about the Cavendish crop, we're talking about 
sort of economic and social issues. So millions of people rely on this for their jobs, the millions of dollars, the big banana companies, the banana is the world's most popular fruit, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in, in, in revenues for the big banana companies. Um, but in addition, these non-Cavendish bananas, the ones we don't get in the United States, which are susceptible to some of the Cavendish diseases and which the diseases can spread from one variety to another, people rely on those bananas for their main source of nutrition. In some parts of the world, like the, the lakes region of Africa, bananas account for 90% of caloric intake. In Asia, the percentage is lower, but, but banana variety is absolutely essential to keeping people uh, nourished and, and not starving. So when we talk about banana disease in the commercial crop, we have to talk about the spread of banana disease from the commercial crop, which is growing all over the world and bringing disease with it, to non-commercial subsistence bananas, which are really important. With entire livelihoods and local economies dependent on the banana, it's critical to protect them. It was fairly easy to replace the Gros Michel banana with the Cavendish back in the 50s and 60s. However, since then, no other naturally grown banana variety has had a predictable growing and ripening pattern, a taste familiar to consumer palates and been strong enough to easily transport. But even if we find all of that, it may not be enough. To really replace the commodity banana, what you need is disease resistance. And this is really important because right now, not just Panama disease, but many other banana diseases are threatening and striking the world banana crop. And even when we have conventional solutions for those diseases, meaning pesticides, fungicides, um, other, other means of chemical control, the, the environmental cost of those conventional means of control is huge, not to mention the economic cost. And bananas are becoming more resistant. So, for example, um, there's a banana malady called Black Sigatoka. In Costa Rica, maybe 20, 30 years ago, a banana crop might have to be sprayed once a month. Now, in some places, they're up to three times a week. Well, the banana is the cheapest fruit in the supermarket. Its price is part of its business plan. And so you can imagine that if the price, if you had to spray it more, the price is going to go up. So ideally, a biotech banana could replace that commodity banana and could improve ripening, for example, um, slow ripening down so that shipping could be accomplished, um, improve disease resistance. Um, there's all sorts of things you could breed in. And this is happening. Um, there is research being done into, into replacing the commodity banana, the Cavendish. And some of this research is really promising. However promising, genetically engineering the banana comes with a number of challenges. But right now, it's the leading option researchers have in the fight against Panama disease. I think that's something that hasn't been emphasized is, is how the use of you know, the smart, transparent use of biotechnology can actually create a much greener environmental impact for all kinds of crops. And, and that's, that's an important thing to think about. Pesticides certainly continue to have purpose and usefulness as they ward off all kinds of threats to our food. However, as Dan illustrated so well, it is possible to overuse them. Hi, my name is Anna Rath. I am the president and CEO of Vesteron. Vesteron is a company seeking to disrupt and improve the pesticide industry using biologics instead of synthetic chemicals. The short version of it is that what we do, which has never been done before, is to produce biopesticides 
that have every bit the same efficacy as synthetics. So that does a few things. It enables sort of the continuation, right, the sustainability of agriculture writ large because 40% of crop yields come from crop protection. And traditional small molecule synthetics a, are being pulled from the market left and right, and B, the ones that are left have been in use so long, they just don't control pests the way they used to. And so if you want to, you know, not only increase, but just maintain agricultural yields, you need new solutions and ones that can um, pass muster, right, in terms of regulatory approval and, and then being maintained on the market after that. As we discuss improving our food systems with biotechnology, it's important to recognize that genetic engineering can't solve every problem immediately. There are innumerable plants for which we don't have the genetic sequence. And even so, it takes years to identify which genes are responsible for desired traits and exactly how to operate them. Vesteron's biologic pesticide offers an easy solution that is available today. And so we actually avoid the possibility of massively increased land use for agriculture by enabling growers to maintain today's yields. That's kind of point number one. Point number two is we are safe to pollinators, right? Be friendly. Uh, and number three is because we degrade, we are peptides, small proteins. And so we degrade to... Um, amino acids in the environment, we are completely safe to fish, birds, mammals. Um, we have, you know, no detrimental residues either in the soil or in watersheds. We did ask her, though, if the problem is that today's pesticides are less effective because of repeated use, wouldn't that eventually also happen to Vesteron's product? Anything you use to keep trying to kill the same pest over and over and over again, eventually the pest will develop resistance to it. However, our peptides are larger than traditional small molecule chemicals. And so they have a larger binding site to the target receptor that they hit. And so what that means is that for some kinds of resistance, in particular, in you know individual point mutations in that target receptor it will those are less likely to disrupt the binding of a large peptide uh, than they are a small molecule so um, we expect and we are developing the academic body of, of work to demonstrate this uh, we expect that it will take longer uh, for pests to develop resistance to peptide-based pesticides than to traditional small molecules but eventually it will still happen. And what that means is that you will want to continue to rotate through uh, different modes of action. As Anna told us, the benefits of a bio-based pesticide do not only apply to North America. One of the things that you can see if you look at uh, the, the the data is that often developing nations use larger amounts of pesticides than more developed nations, sometimes for a variety of reasons. And that then leads to even greater negative environmental consequences from all of that 
um, use of the synthetic chemical pesticides than what we have even here. And so if you can offer a product with the same efficacy, but greater environmental profile so that you're not having all those negative side effects when you use a pesticide, uh, I think that um, should be um, very helpful to those markets. Gene editing and biopesticides are important tools for addressing the challenges of today's food systems. But unfortunately, not everyone agrees. It's a point of contention in the European Union. Check out these brief clips from a France 24 special report. Hello, welcome to Spain and specifically Madrid's bustling Mercado de la Paz. Now, this produce here will soon end up on the plates of hungry Madrid residents, people well used to fresh fruit and veg in what is the European Union's second biggest farming nation by area after France. Now, one major difference between these two agricultural giants is that Spain is by far and away the EU's biggest grower of GM or genetically modified crops, whereas zero is grown in French soil. Now, fans of GM say that farmers who grow the insect-resistant maize that's authorized here use fewer pesticides and have better profits. However, detractors claim that GM crops contaminate regular maize, that many growers use just as many chemicals, and the long-term costs outweigh the short-term profit. Joanne has been farming here for over 50 years. He sees GMO as vital to saving farming in Catalonia, which was ravaged by insect infestations. But now consumers are unwilling to buy products labelled GM, so Joanne and other farmers here have had to cut back. From 70% GMO, he's now at 15%. If they banned GMOs here, I would be the first to protest against the ban. Here, we're very vulnerable to a return of the pests that would affect us severely. The only protection we have is this genetically modified maize. Only a handful of European Union members grow biotech crops. The rest maintain a ban despite facing increased threats from climate change and ravaging pests. In the wake of Brexit, the United Kingdom has decided to revisit their stance on biotech crops. One thing that we don't talk about a lot, you know, when, when you hear people fearing biotech, I mean, you know, we could talk about bananas specifically, thick skins, they don't carry a lot of pesticides in them. You know, bananas are, are, are clones, so they don't give off seeds, pollen in, in most cases. So this idea, you know, whether it's real or not, of cross-contamination is just not an issue with bananas, you know, allergenicity, you know, I think that's a superstition, you know, so, so I think biotech is safe um, for bananas and it potentially, I don't know a lot about other crops, so I'm not going to say it's safe, but I can't imagine there are economic issues and it, 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 there are potential health issues, but all these things can be dealt with with transparency. And, and that's really, really important because I think people are scared of it in, in an irrational way. Transparency and education are quite important. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said something similar to me during our recent chat at BioDigital. Well, impressive effort towards offsetting the past, but you also have a lot of focus on the future. And there's so many exciting biotechnologies on the horizon from medicine to food to sustainable aviation fuels. 
But for these innovations to become a routine part of our lives, we really have to kind of align the science with consumer values and consumer acceptance. How would you like to see the biotech industry, environmental groups, consumer advocacy organizations, and others really work together to grow trust in the innovation ecosystem and satisfy curiosities about biotechnology? I think it's really, really important, this issue of trust. We just see so much mistrust in so many different areas of this discussion, but frankly, in so many different areas of our entire society, our entire world, that we really have to relearn how to create trust in the process, trust in the system. I think first and foremost, it's important for people to understand what science actually does to get to a point where there's confidence uh, in a vaccine or confidence in a particular uh, technology. Uh, It isn't just you wake up one morning, uh, do a few experiments and uh, basically say, hey, this works. Uh, This is very uh, minute, detailed, long-term work that's done by many, many dedicated uh, and committed scientists that moves the dial slowly but surely to a point where there, there, there is a consensus that, in fact, this technology works, this technology doesn't create an unreasonable risk, this technology can be beneficial to people. And so it's important, I think, uh, for us to, to relearn that, that system. Now, it starts, obviously, with our K-12 system and making sure that young people understand what the scientific method is all about, understand that this has been developed over centuries, um, and as a result of, of an understanding and appreciation that to really move things to improve life, you have to experiment. When you experiment, th- sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. But you don't necessarily take an experiment out and tell people that, it, that it's going to work for everybody until you know for sure that that's the case. So number one is basically working hard to getting the message about the method. And then secondly, begin to stress again the benefits uh, to a large audience. I think uh, we learned a lot uh, from the mistakes that were made with uh, genetically modified uh, crops. Um, We made a terrific uh, sales pitch to farmers. Said, hey, really, really important stuff. This will increase your productivity. This will reduce your input costs because you won't have to use this or that uh, to, to kill this pest or disease because by golly, this is going to be basically factored out of out of this crop from because of science. Farmers gravitated to it. They absolutely embraced it. They were excited about it. Well, turns out we forgot to talk to the consumers. And by creating that that void of conversation, we allowed others, for whatever reason, to begin the conversation and to more uh, effectively define what this was or wasn't in the minds of consumers which created horrific barriers uh, to the utilization of some of these technologies in many countries around the world. So now we have new, new science, gene editing, well, not new science, but a, a new, new ways of using science, gene editing, understanding that by editing, the, the, by doing what nature does, you can essentially, uh, and accelerate that process, you can essentially create a whole new way of providing greater productivity and potentially profitability. Now, we've got this opportunity to learn from that GMO experience by basically making sure that people understand, for example, that gene editing is really accelerating nature's pace. It's not doing anything different. It's not injecting some foreign substance into the plant. It's basically taking the genetically makeup of this plant 
and 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 altering it naturally, if you will, in a way that will create a, a positive outcome. Uh, so it's, I think, important to do that. Betsy joined us to discuss transparency as well. Yes, I'm Betsy Boreen. I am Senior Vice President of Regulatory and Technical Affairs for the Consumer Brands Association. The Consumer Brands Association represents the consumer packaged goods industry. These are companies, these are, they make the brands that you use every single day, whether it is food or beverage, personal care products, or household products. So whether it's disinfectant wipes, the shampoos or the face lotions, the toilet paper, the paper towel, the breakfast cereal, or the canned foods, the most iconic brands that you see when you walk in the grocery store are members of consumer brands. As Betsy explains to us, in the last few years, the USDA has implemented a bioengineering disclosure rule. The bioengineering rule was set by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Marketing Service. It intends to provide information about the status, the bioengineering status of a food and beverage, very high level. Of course, there are specifics that you go in. The manufacturer has to make that declaration on the physical label, or for the first time ever, you also have the alternative of providing a digital disclosure. Uh, to the BE rule. So that way, consumers, when they walk into the store or buy online or use their iPhone to look at products, they have an immediate understanding if that product contains a bioengineered ingredient or is a bioengineered food. As noteworthy as the new transparency rule is, there is still some difficulty in implementing it across the supply chain, which, as Secretary Vilsack said, doesn't help with consumer confidence. In regards to bioengineer foods, I think the industry needs every tool in the tool chest when it comes to making new and innovative products. I think they should have the right, the ability to use those technologies as they want. They also need to share the information, should they choose to, with the consumers. Some of the challenges that we've had with the recent bioengineering rule that goes into effect um, at the beginning of next year is this rule is really only applies to manufacturers. Manufacturers are held compliant to that rule, but yet to be compliant for that rule means that you have to talk to your suppliers and your suppliers have to talk to your suppliers, um, people that are not being held in compliance to that rule and share information. So the BE food rule was a great step in providing clear product transparency to consumers. There's a lot to improve there, but I'm hopeful that the rest of the supply chain will continue to share the information that manufacturers need to be compliant with that rule and share the core information that consumers expect to see now. This fall, world leaders are gathering at the United Nations Food Systems Summit to, quote, awaken the world to the fact that we all must work together to transform the way the world produces, consumes, and thinks about food, end quote. It's an important topic to discuss as the global population barrels towards 10 billion people in less than 30 years. And according to UN reporting, hunger and poverty rates continue to increase. Without intervention, global hunger will remain a huge challenge and deeply affect people's health and lives. Bananas are hardly the only cash crop up against a threatening time clock. Plenty of crops are farmed using monoculture agriculture, as Dan Coppell explains. 
Um, you know, there, there, there are all sorts of issues, you know, and sometimes there's a monoculture with two or three varieties, but, you know, grapes have, have been subject to monoculture issues for a long time. Another one that's got really big problems these days, a smaller crop than banana is kiwi fruit. Um, there are about 20 to 25 different kiwi fruit varieties. Um, there are two commercial varieties in the United States. We basically get one of them for the most part. And kiwis have been subjected to similar attacks from, from funguses um, that have really hurt the, the kiwi industry. And, and in fact, kiwi is a great example because in attempting to save the kiwi by introducing just one additional kiwi crop, hoping to dilute they actually spread the disease um, to a great extent. And so, you, you know, a mon when I say monoculture, banana is an extreme example. The word mono means one. But really, you know, in, in terms of like what's good for crops, you're talking like two or three. And even that makes these things very susceptible to, to you know, industry wipeout level disasters. Um, so, yeah, kiwi and grape are, are two, just two, but there's more. There are countless other foods we eat every day that are under threat. That's why our society must act to improve equitable and sustainable food production and distribution. And it's why biotechnology, with all of its advances and potential, has to be part of the conversation. The sooner we get people comfortable with it, the better off we'll all be. To learn more about the benefits of genetically engineering food, visit bio.org or innovature.com. Thank you to all of today's guests. This is the last episode of the season until the fall, but don't worry, we'll be back in your feed with some bonus episodes all summer. Keep a lookout. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and or review. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at IamBiotech. And subscribe to Good Day Bio at bio.org slash goodday. This episode was developed by executive producer Teresa Brady and producers Connor McCoy, Cornelia Poku, and Marilyn Sawyer. It was mixed by Jess Fenton. Theme music created by Luke Smith and Sam Brady. <laughs>